Welcome to this Centrum podcast. For more podcasts or to join Centrum programs building creativity in community, visit us at centrum.org. I'm Michelle Haygood, and this is On Air, a podcast focusing on conversations with artists and creatives from Centrum's residency community. I am broadcasting to you from the lands and waters of the Coast Salish people in a place known as Katai to the Sklalem people and today known as Port Townsend, Washington. This podcast is focused on bringing artists together in community to explore the ways that place, process, and the personal intersect. We dive into the many ways that artists are responding to the current times, affecting change, and finding sustenance during health, climate, and social crisis. Join us and take an hour to be in residence and unpack your own relationships to creativity, time, and place. Thank you for being here and enjoy this episode. So I am back here with Aaron Assis. It's nice to see you again, Aaron. Likewise, Michelle. Thank you. Um, or hear you again for those listening. And it has been, we are, what, are we three weeks into the project now? Or four? Uh, Got to be at least four, yeah, at this point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's Time is going by fast. Um, so at the time of this recording, your installations are still up on Artillery Hill. And... The last time we spoke with you, we listened to some conversations that you had between Marlon Holden and Shelley Levins, and today we're following up with two more conversations that you conducted around this project, Fort Words, and could you tell us a little bit about how these, how you came to talk to these people and who they are? Yeah, Absolutely. So Marlon and Shelley were, were great conversationalists representing, you know, the perspective from the tribe and this great elder, great wisdom and storytelling from, from an elder's perspective. And Shelley working with the historical society and this great interest in oral histories and being a, a partner and working with delivering some of the content through a lot of the conversations that we had had developing this project. A lot of names floated around and talking with Tim Caldwell, a name that came up as a great uh, local historian with tremendous knowledge of the fort's early developmental history and a great appreciator of what the fort has become. So he was a fun person to get to know a little bit and talk with on this. And also speaking with Ella Sandvig, who is a a fort resident in the late 1950s and 1960s. Um, And she worked closely with juvenile detainees when the fort operated. So it was post-military operation and while it operated as a juvenile detention facility. Um, in the 50s and 60s before it became a park in 1970s. So I think those perspectives are going to be different from the voices and the stories that Marlon and Shelley um, shared with us in part one of this podcast, but I think they'll also represent a very interesting kind of wrinkle a little bit more um, into the logistics of the fort and those types of stories. So I think I think with that, let's start with Ella. Great. So now it's my pleasure to invite Ella Sandvig to talk with us a little bit. Um, Ella is has a, a long history of residing and working on the fort, um, as she says, basically for forever, from the time it started till, till the time it ended. Ella, welcome. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us. No problem. And I think, you know, the, the first question is always the, the easiest and the hardest. I think really I would just like for you to take a few minutes just to introduce yourself to us and just start talking about maybe the, the first or most, most memorable story that kind of pops into mind. Okay, my name is Ella Sandvig, and I, I enjoyed all my years working at Fort Warden. I was transferred from Chehalis up here when the fort first became a place for juvenile delinquents. I have a funny story about arriving here since Fort Warden used to be an army post, and, I, and they, they gave me a house on the grounds of the fort that I paid $18 a month for. (laughs) And when I arrived with my husband and four kids, the place was boarded up with signs that said uh, off limits. So I called the the superintendent and he said to call maintenance. And I got a hold of a guy who ended up 
being my neighbor, and he said, just uh, hold your horses, I'll be right there. And they came and let me in. <laughs> that was how I arrived here. Oh, my God. What was the condition of the building inside? It wasn't bad, actually. Uh, it was a duplex, but and they had promised to cut the doors through, so I'd have enough bedrooms for us all, but that wasn't done until I moved in later. <laughs> and how long, how long were you actually, uh, did you actually stay in that particular home? Uh, five years. Five years. That, that, that's incredible. I, I, I'm curious to ask you on, on sort of that note, because I know the, the fort has gone through several iterations and in the most recent iteration, we're seeing some of the projects being brought or some of the properties being brought back to life for, for different uses, um, restaurant uses or community gatherings, schools, things like that. I'm curious if your experience then reminds you of anything that's going on now or if it was just a totally different thing. Pretty much totally different. Once the kids left and they, they moved the, the institution to Issaquah, it, it was a totally different use. So I missed seeing the kids all over the ground. Mm -hmm. When exactly did that happen? I came in 1958 and it probably had started up in uh, just a few months before that. And they left in 72. I mean, I think really one of the things that would be most interesting to hear about is just, you know, if we're looking at change, I mean, A, you know, how the fort operated between uh, the 50s and the 70s. Um, and, you know, the second thing is just how, how it's changed since then, since the operation sort of slowed down and the fort has kind of transformed into something that's a little bit more of a, of a public use instead of an operational one. Right, it's now been taken over by the Parks Department, and before mm -hmm. it was the, the institutions that ran it. And, and at one time, there were 200 kids and 200 staff, which I still boggles my mind, because the, the diagnostic part of it moved up here from Chehalis, and, it, and it, then it became a diagnostic and treatment center. So kids from every county who were committed by the court came here to the diagnostic center where they stayed a few weeks and were evaluated and then sent on to other places and or kept here in the treatment side of the operation. Did that ratio of 200 to 200, did that ever fluctuate very much or was that pretty consistent? Uh, it was fairly consistent. It took a while to build up to that, of course, but because they added girls, at first it was just boys and then it became, we had cottage parents and recreation people and social workers and psych and psychologists and one psychiatrist on the staff. So there was a big staff. And was, was most of this operation, was it concentrated down by the parade grounds? Yeah, across from the parade ground was the building, ad building where my office was. And then there, there's a block of several big buildings. It used to be barracks mm -hmm. that housed the cottage, the kids and their cottage parents. And so over, over those period of, I guess, 20 years or so, you know, in the, I guess the early stages of its operation, and then as it kind of like went through the iterations of building up to that 200-200 number and then kind of coming back down into um, ultimately its closure, um, right. what, did, what did that feel like for you, uh, maybe not even professionally, but maybe more personally, as somebody who was working there for that entire time and developed a relationship with the grounds and with the staff and with some of the patients and people? Well, I'm sure I felt like most of the other people. We, we were very sad about mm -hmm. it because we all, we all thought we were part of something bigger because when it started, when they brought in Gus Lindquist from Kansas, they totally changed the way uh, juvenile corrections worked. Instead of punishment, it became treatment. Mm -hmm. And I lived, before I moved up here, close to Green Hill School, which is where the uh, more troubled kids went. And their theory was to beat the heck out of the kids at that point. Mm -hmm. And from the, from the time they started up here, that changed totally. It became treatment, not punishment. So we were all, we all felt a part of something really great. Mm -hmm. Very, very sad. In fact, some of the professionals who transferred to other institutions, quite a few of them died not long after that. So I thought that was interesting. That's horrible. So we were all very sad when it ended. Yeah. 
Of course. When, when you were doing this work and feeling like you were part of a better solution, um, did, did you see, I, I mean, was there proof in that? Like, did you witness proof in sort of the treatments? So, yes, uh, I, uh, I saw the kids as, as they came in to meet with their social workers, and uh, I knew they were treated well. Did they, did they speak with you about that, the difference in the treatment? Oh, the kids? No, not, no. not really. No. They, they might have, if I was sitting out at the reception desk to relieve her to go to coffee, they might talk to me, but they didn't say anything about how they were treated. Mm-hmm. And so then as we kind of went through the, the decades and got into the early 70s, what were some of the early indications that the school or the, the grounds might be shut down or that things were priming to change? Well, we began to hear rumors a few years before it actually closed that they were considering turning it over to the parks department. Uh, mm. So we heard the rumors a few, I suppose about a year before it closed, we, we started hearing those rumors. We knew the state was unhappy with the diagnostic center part of it because of the transportation to Port Townsend, which is, I don't know if you know where we're located, but we're kind of mm-hmm. in way, way at the end of the earth, it seems like. Mm-hmm. And so it costs the state a lot of money to transport kids from every county in the state here to Port Townsend. So we knew they were unhappy with that. So they wanted, and they when they moved it, they moved it to Issaquah, which is, you know, in the greater near the greater King County area where it would be easier to transport kids. Yes, and I guess that makes sense from a transportation logistics perspective, but um, did, did they maintain the same philosophy when they moved? Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. How did your relationship with the, with the fort then change? You know, how, how do you sort of bridge the gap between these memories and this period of time that you felt like you were part of something special to now maybe being part of a different kind of special thing? Well, I, I was still fond of, of Fort Warden because, it, you know, it's a beautiful place. And they had, when I worked for the county, I could schedule conferences there. And they had, uh, that was available for statewide conferences. Mm-hmm. And so I, I still felt good about being living close to the fort. Uh, Is there a single memory or a single, you know, I mean, it could be an isolated memory or an ongoing memory. Is there a single thing that really stands out to you when you think back to your time working on the fort? Oh, that is difficult. Uh, I loved walking to work from my house to to my office. Uh, and I loved watching the kids play football out on the drill field. I liked the people I worked with a lot. worked with social worker psychologists and our one psychiatrist, and, and I found that very interesting. Mm-hmm. Have any of those relationships endured? Some, uh, but I had three different bosses in, in that social service department, all named Bob, <laughs> and they're all gone now because I'm going to be 90 next in November, so I've outlived most everybody that I've worked with. <laughs> and um, I, I, do, I do sort of want to spend just a couple of minutes towards the end of this uh, asking you a little bit more about, you know, what, what the fort continues to mean to you in your life, like what you feel it means to people around you. Um, and the hardest part of that question is, is what, what do you think it'll be next? Oh boy, I have no idea. <laughs> There's a lot going on there now, of course, and they, they rent out some of the, the buildings where our staff lived on, so staff, li- most of us lived on the grounds, and that those big old houses now are rented out. People mm-hmm. make reservations a year ahead to come and stay there for holidays. Uh, but I don't. And they've got a printing press, a rather famous one, Copper Canyon Printing Press, on the grounds. And I'm not sure I've kept up just recently with what's going on out there. It's interesting. There are a lot of the, uh, the conversations that I've been having with with people um, over the years, or sorry, over the years, uh, over the past couple weeks, um, have been centered around you know these histories and how we can celebrate those histories today, so that people don't quick forget 
you know, something that feels like a, a park that has all these uses on it um, has served not just the history you and I are talking about, but also a, a more straightforward military history going back to the turn right. of the century. Right. Um, was there any, sorry, I'm sort of jumping back in time again, but was there any, uh, when you started working there, what was the relationship like between the work you guys were setting out to do and that kind of more recent military past? I don't think there was any, but when down on the grounds of the fort down to the beach, there was still a Navy installation when we came here. Mm -hmm. But I don't think we had any past feelings about the military being there. Was that Navy installation still active when you started? Yeah, 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 yeah. It was. It was probably there for a year or two after, and then they moved out. Mm -hmm. And now it's quite a popular beach. If if this were California, it would be loaded every day. But our weather's not like California. I think if you ask certain people, they would still say it's loaded every day, and it's a little, you know, there have been some some contemporary concerns with that, but it seems to be a very popular and very well loved treasure. Yes, yes. Fort Warden is quite, quite a popular place for people all around the state, actually. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I would like to ask maybe just one final question, and that's, is there something else that you feel is either important to share as a memory or important to share as a thought or just an important thing that you want to share? Well, when they moved the institution to Issaquah, most of us were quite sad because we were all uh, fond of the children, and of course, and we watched them, you know, play football out of the drill field and all of that. So we felt really bad about not about them leaving. And one of the reasons was that we thought it was a wonderful place to treat the kids in the treatment section. Their caseworkers would might take them down to the beach to talk with them. I mean, it was just a great place for the kids to be, to have that treatment. And, and mm -hmm. that's why we all felt so bad about them leaving. And it's, it's a really interesting, I mean, I think, I, I think you know, as, as an outsider to the fort who's kind of learning about it just over the past year or so, I, I think there's so much focus on, on the, the military piece of the history and the park piece of the history. And we kind of skip this 20 year window in, in between. And I think it's really, fantastic to, to hear you kind of not just talk about its existence and operation as that type of outpost, but also the, the meaningfulness of it to the kids who are on campus and how, you know, wonderful a setting it was for them and how innovative the treatment options were for them during that time. Yeah, that, that, that was why we all hated for it to leave. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, 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 a, it's a very interesting perspective and it's something I think that really kind of rounds things out well. I don't know, I'm just sort of honored and really pleased to just have this chance to talk to you for a few minutes. My pleasure. Well, thank you, Ella, very much. We, again, really appreciate this perspective and I'm really happy to know that the Ford is still a part of your life and a part of your heart. And I, I hope that it continues to be so for years to come. Thank you. That was Ella Sandvig. She's going to be our representative voice of person who lived on the fort, which is a unique perspective amongst these interviewees. But now we're going to go back in time before we go forward in time. We talk with Tim Caldwell, who's a local historian and really has a great perspective on the, uh, on the fort's history, both in the past, but also on its contemporary use and, and thinking about it in terms of moving into the future. So uh, let's, let's talk with Tim right now. So we're, we're now going to be joined by Tim Caldwell, a local historian um, who's always been enamored by the magic of Fort Warden uh, and is a self-proclaimed kid from the region who um, just has spent most of his life exploring ideas about the fort, working closely with it and feeling inspired by it. Um, really pleased to introduce Tim to uh, talk with us this morning. Good morning, Tim. Good morning. Good morning, Aaron. How are you? Um, I'm well. How are you? How are you guys doing? Thank you. Fine. Thank you. So you and I had a chance to speak a little bit last week, and uh, I, I love being able to introduce you as someone who appreciates the magic of the fort uh, and also has a very you know, close local connection to Port Townsend and to the fort itself. Uh, but one of the main reasons or one of the main focuses that I wanted to talk with you about uh, during our time 
was sort of the early developmental history of the fort and just wanted to hear some of your perspectives, maybe a couple of things you've learned over the years or things that you found particularly inspiring about how the fort came to be originally and how and why it was built where it was built and just kind of give you mm -hmm. an open, open license to enchant us with some stories. Okay, okay. Well, the, the, the idea of a fort at uh, what was then, before they named it Fort Warden, was called the reservation at Point Wilson. Um, as the, basically the entrance from the strait into Puget Sound, going back to even the early 1800s, uh, they pointed that particular piece of land as a strategic entry point into the, uh, the waters of Puget Sound. But it wasn't until the Endicott Board, which uh, was in the uh, late 1800s, which was the War Department's board to look at all the defensive assets that the country had on both the Atlantic and Pacific coasts, as well as the Caribbean, and even somewhere on the, on the Great Lakes. But a fort for the Pacific Northwest came about in uh, 1898 when the Navy decided to put a shipyard in Bremerton, and it was felt they needed some way to protect that investment in the Navy yard. So they built the three forts or had plans for the forts of Fort Flagler, Fort Casey, and Fort Warden. Basically a, an iron triangle defense to the entrance of Puget Sound. So the forts, they started construction between 1897 and 1898. Three forts were all completed by about 1902. And uh, the first troops arrived officially at Fort Warden, I believe, May 14th in 1902. A great story about that that is uh, in the leader of that of that day is the town knew the uh, the soldiers were coming, so they were all mustered down on uh, Union Wharf in what the leader called their best bib and tucker, had a big band ready to play, and the Soldiers that were aboard the uh, the ship, the Majestic, uh, sailed right by Union Wharf and uh, sailed on down to the dock at Fort Warden. So the grand arrival was was kind of missed. Evidently, Captain McCluskey didn't get the memo, so the soldiers didn't stop. But anyway, that was the that was the opening fanfare for Fort Warden's troops arriving at Fort Warden. I, I love that like human story about the, the missing of the garden. I kind of wanted to interject a little bit with, you know, how the relationship between the soldiers and the town may have uh, evolved in those early days. Well, it's, it's surprising when the, the fort originally opened up. And again, the Coast Artillery Corps, that was the tip of the spear of Army technology. The disappearing guns, the mechanics involved, the math and geometry and calculus involved in, in firing one of these big guns. I guess the equivalent today would be like the personnel that go to uh, nuke school, you know, for subs or for any of the nuke ships we have in the service. This was high-end soldiers. This wasn't your basic infantry. So the, the Coast Artillery Corps that first showed up were the first real tech Army technicians, certainly since the Civil War. So this was state-of-the-art stuff. And uh, the soldiers that first arrived, obviously it was uh, the building boom was going on. Uh, a lot of the houses and barracks weren't done yet, so they were living in tents up on Artillery Hill where they, where they emplaced the guns. The fort really kind of grew into its own with the beginning of World War I. What I found in research is that when the U.S. did enter the war late in 1917, the East Coast winter, I guess, was very severe. So a lot of East Coast enlistees ended up here out on the West Coast in Flagler, Casey, and Warden for their basic training. And also uh, there was a huge demand for spruce wood because that's what airplanes were made out of. So they took a lot of these trainees and instead of shipping them over to Europe, made uh, loggers out of them and sent them out into the uh, woods of the Olympic Peninsula to cut down wood for, uh, for building airplanes. One regiment of Fort Warden did make it over to France, but by the time they got there and set up their training, the armistice was signed, uh, was signed and they, were, uh, they were, were returned home. Uh, there are some excellent, there was a Captain Newman who was stationed at Fort Warden who wrote a daily journal from the time the regiment left Port Townsend until it got to France and returned. It really tells day by day from uh, an officer's point of view just what these boys from Port Townsend, or at least the trainees from Port Townsend, went through during the war. So there, there is quite a bit of information about, about the fort uh, from World War I in particular. 
You, you mentioned the, the state of the artness of the, the, the military technology, some of the artillery and some of the, I, I'm, I'm going to lack the technical language here, but the, the cannons or the guns, I guess. Yeah, the big disappearing guns. The big yes. disappearing uh -huh. guns. How, yeah. how did that technology impact the design of the fort itself, both in terms of the, the landscape and the topography at Fort Warden, but also the, the technology of these guns? Well, and, and that was the whole idea of Artillery Hills, that you didn't want it to look like a fort for incoming ships. So the, they dug these ramparts that were below what would be the line of sight for the, for the horizon. And these big guns were on counterweights. And by big guns, I mean the, the largest we have was a 12-inch diameter, which means the shell weighed probably, you know, six, 700 pounds. And it could be shot, you know, it could be thrown out there close to uh, seven, eight miles. So basically the three forts were in range of each other, but firing up uh, the sound or firing towards the strait, the whole idea was no surface ship could, could enter past Point Wilson without being saturated with these heavy shells that are dropped from uh, three different forts. Uh, the guns themselves, when they say disappearing, they were on big counterweights. So the cannon barrel itself would be, once it was loaded, the weight would be released and the cannon barrel would come up above the rampart. The firing of the gun, the recoil would force the barrel back down below the rampart where it would be reloaded and then pop back up again for firing. Uh, that, hence, that's why they call it a disappearing gun. They also had four mortar parks. And these are those stubby little cannons, that very, very short barrel that point practically straight up. And they fire a hard, heavy shell that's uh, what they call plunging fire. Because the way ships were designed back then, the sides of the ships were where the thick armor was. But the decks themselves, in many cases, uh, were still uh, oak wooden decks. So the plunging fire from these mortars was the idea was to go through the deck while the big disappearing guns would have the hard armor piercing shells that would fire through the side of a ship. So it was a uh, you know, very dangerous looking, very uh, ominous looking uh, weapons that fortunately were never fired in anger, just practice. But they were very accurate. They were, they were very, uh, it was very state-of-the-art equipment, but unfortunately, uh, the guns, uh, the advancements in shipping munitions and, and armory was outpaced the, um, the forts. So the, literally the, the Fort Warden cannons were obsolete almost by the time they were installed. The guns on the ships were, were bigger and stronger by the time the fort was finished. And I, I, I've heard that before in reference to different forts mm -hmm. around the country is how the, the technology sped up so rapidly between, you know, pretty much the mid 1800s into about World War One and how so much of the construction lagged behind the technology rates and speeds. Nothing was ever fired uh, in wartime. It was all just for practice. How, how, often, how often did they practice? Like, what was a practice? What does that, what does that mean? Well, the... Now from, I'm talking more in the um, in the 30s now than the 40s because I this is firsthand from uh, my mother. She can remember they was uh, you could read in the leader in the in the third in the mid 30s they would announce when the uh, fort was having gunnery practice. And it was pretty important that they did that because particularly the neighborhood, if you didn't leave your windows open a little bit, the concussion from the shells could crack windows. And so. They would list when they were having, uh, they would even list which mounts were actually going to do the gunnery practice. So it wasn't like they did a lot of rapid firing because, again, between the two wars, you know, the military budgets were pretty lean, so they didn't fire a lot of guns uh, very consistently. But yeah, they could, they could make some noise. And they do have articles in, in the leaders talking about the accuracy that they actually sank a couple of the target sleds, severed the tow lines that the tugs were pulling the uh, target sleds with so yeah these 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 guns could do some damage but uh, uh evidently they only did it to to uh, target sleds and not to actual ships i i can't i can't believe that just activating these cannons could have such a a radial impact on the surrounding properties on literally windows of homes yeah. nearby or something like that well what? these it's uh and, and the museum unfortunately that's the one thing you really can't recreate that they have videos of these guns going off, but you can see pictures. They do have photos of the concussion where you see soldiers that are standing several yards away from the gun actually being knocked over by the concussion. They actually have a great photo of a, of a soldier losing his hat and being knocked off his feet, and he's got to be at least 20, 30 yards from the gun itself when it fires. And in fact, for the uh, mortar parks, 
the four mortar parks that they have up there, they had four of these big mortars in there. They had to take two of them out because the way the walls were built when they fired the guns themselves, the, all that concussion and sound waves was trapped in these where the guns actually sat, and it would actually damage the ears of the, of the soldiers. So they had to load these guns. They wouldn't have to run outside of the of the mortar park area before they could fire them. So the uh, the concussion from these guys was was pretty damaging uh, to the people firing the guns. Uh, at least we're only talking about losing hats, and we're not talking about losing other things. <laughs> well, and unfortunately, there there was a, a very graphic article in the paper, and this took place in the early night. I'm not sure the exact date, 1917, 1918, but the governor of the state was coming up, and they were firing a salute and one of the guns uh, the breach parted from the uh, the gun and hit a soldier and and uh, ended up killing him and the press of the day and i actually wrote an article about this before a year or so ago but it described in graphic detail what this cannon did to this poor soldier so probably more detail than you would find today in, in a local paper but it was it was pretty gruesome so yeah this was a very uh, dangerous place to be and these big guns, it took up to 60 soldiers to uh, to crew one of these big 12-inch disappearing guns. God, it's it, it's amazing. I mean, I think just for, for somebody like myself that has a relationship only with the fort in, in the contemporary, it's, I mean, it's amazing to hear the story. It's even more amazing, uh, amazing, not in the, the positive kind of like, you know, balloons way, but it's just amazing mm -hmm. to hear about the manpower it takes to run these things and try to picture that environment. Mm -hmm. It was... It was pretty amazing, and this was, and it was a real transition time because the fort itself it was built on the style that Western forts where you had cavalry, you know, Custer and the Seventh Cavalry kind of a fort. We had this great big parade ground, officers' houses on one side of the parade ground, enlisted man barracks on the other. A lot of spit and polish. Every Friday was a formal um, uh, inspection uh, with full band. A lot of times the public was invited to come out and, and watch them uh, do their pass and review. So there was still a lot of spit and polish that went along with the military and, and it was clashing with this brand new technology that, you know, that basically almost changed overnight. And for every new tactical advantage that the Army would think they'd have, the Navy would redesign and build something new within a matter of months, it seemed like. So, but what really kind of put an end to the fort as a, as a bastion of defense was uh, the airplane. And it quickly made Fort Warden move from being a, a defensive fortress to basically a, a boot camp or a training camp for, for newly enlisted personnel. And that was true through all three wars, World War One, World War Two, and Korea. And that was literally going to be my next question was how, you know, when, why, and how did the force start to change? So if we're, if we're talking about gradual transitions between World War One and Two, and then again, you know, between World War Two and Korea, mm -hmm. in addition to the advent of the plane sort of changing the strategy and the, the actual use of the fort or the, the priority of the fort, what, what are some of the more major changes that took place during or in between those wars? Okay, we'll say World War One. Uh, the first thing they did is, um, is they took quite a few of the cannon off of the hill, artillery hill, and shipped it to Europe and made uh, ground artillery out of them. So we lost. So a lot of the big guns left after World War One. more of them left after World War Two, and they were all gone by about the, by the Korean War. <laughs> Interestingly, we, uh, the Coast Artillery Museum, you know, can track, you, you can track basically the serial numbers of all these different cannons. And we have found one, the gun that was in Battery Vickers, which I think was only a five-inch gun. It is now a memorial in Choosville, Maryland. And if you Google Choosville, Maryland and focus in on the little community, you'll see this little war memorial right off of a railroad siding. And that, that cannon used to sit at Fort Wharton. Believe it or not, uh, Coast Artillery was actually contacted the community to see if we could get the gun back. But uh, uh, they, were, they weren't interested, <laughs> so... That's where the last remaining gun of Fort Warden, as far as we know, is right now. So, but again, as a as a boot camp, uh, when the munitions went away, because really they're obsolete and they weren't going to be used anyway. Besides being a training ground for uh, new inductees, they still treated used the forts as anchors for uh, submarine nets uh, to keep shipping and and submarines out of the Puget Sound waters. 
but there was no real attempt to use the forts as defending the coastline. They were they were there both basically as boot camps. And I, and I know I've seen some um, some remnants of those submarine nets at the Coast Artillery Museum, which I'm I'm guessing were from that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, then those nets uh, were actually there. They were still here. In fact, the big floats, the big you you'll see them down in the lower campground uh, down by the Marine Science Center. You'll see some of these big gray round floats that uh, used to hold the the net as it crossed over towards Fort Flagler. There was even one down by the uh, off of Jefferson Street, one of the Marine stores, or Marine supply stores. It has a big statue of it's a. <laughs> It looks like a man. So it has a, a round head and this round body and this chain holding it all together. Those were actually floats that were part of the, the submarine net as well. But as a kid, there used to be, when they pulled them all out of the water, I would say up to about the mid-60s, they, hundreds of them were parked in a big empty lot down where uh, one of the motels are right now. I had a summer job uh, painting out all the rust spots on the uh, on several hundred submarine net floats. Uh, they were around here for quite a while, though, after they pulled them out of the water. One of the one of the things between um, the Korean War, the fort did play a pretty significant role in that particular conflict. They, they had uh, special engineering groups stationed here that operated uh, landing craft, like the ones you'd see in, in Normandy, these big flat bottom with the uh, ramp in front that would drop down and, and soldiers or supplies would be, would be uh, transferred to shore. They did have, uh, I can't remember the number of the regiment that was here, but they were sent to Korea literally within weeks after the war started. And they were responsible in a couple of the major con- uh, battles of bringing supplies uh, to the front lines uh, under fire. And these were all troops from um, that were trained in Port Townsend and went to Korea very early in the, at the beginning of the war. So it, it's during World War II, uh, in terms of the troops that came through here, off the top of my head, I can't recall where specific groups or regiments went intact to, uh, to different conflicts. It was more or less they came in and were trained here and then shipped out and filled in different units. I don't have any records at this time on anything during World War II as it was where you had specific units like you did in Korea go off to war. How, I mean, is, is there anything in your sort of historic explorations that speaks to the, the way that life changed on the fort in between those years? And was there, you know, more or less volume of soldiers? Did their kind of general lifestyles or behavioral tendencies change between those over time based on the conditions that the war warranted or just general evolution over time? It, it was. It was real feast and famine. The, the fort was put into caretaker status twice in its 51 years as an army post. So again, opening up in 1902, within 10 to 12 years, it was it had several thousand troops there who were basically going through boot camp for World War One. And then as the regiment went over, basically to get over there in time for the armistice and come back home, it was put into caretaker status. So it was down to only several hundred officers and men in the mid 30s everything started ramping up again. And during World War II, the population of Port Townsend was roughly 4,000 people, and the population of Fort Warden was equivalent, about 4,000 people. So it doubled the size of the community. Obviously, housing was an issue at the fort, so almost anything that was open in Port Townsend uh, was the government uh, was subsidizing housing. Where the school pool is today, Mountain View, uh, that used to be, back as a kid, I remember, that used to be low-income housing. And they built quite a bit of housing in there during World War II. Uh, when I was growing up, the foundations were the only thing that was left. But there was there was quite a bit of time and effort put into finding room for the soldiers uh, in uh, at the fort. So, yeah, they were they were definitely a big player during the war. There's no question. The Where it really impacted the community, uh, and that's what my mother always mentioned a lot, is that the Army had some of the best musicians around. And besides their, their regular marching band, which you would expect for an Army, they uh, had several uh, jazz bands and, and dance bands that would perform uh, weekends uh, at all three forts and obviously invite the community in as well. And they used to do armed forces uh, radio broadcasts from Fort Warden because, uh, again, they had, I'm forgetting, the, I think it was the 369th band. And that's, when you think of the big bands of the 40s, I guess Port Townsend and Fort Warden was a very popular place for that reason. I, I, I 
find that really interesting considering, again, uh, it's an outsider, but I still feel like there's a rich history or, or a very vital interest in, in musical things, all things musical anyway. And I feel like, con- you know, today in the contemporary, the, the fort becomes or is quickly transformed into a pretty vital musical spectacle itself. It was. And again, I wrote about that as well. Uh, and if you, again, look back in the papers of the, uh, the leaders during the 30s and 40s, big names showed up. And this was, it was, it was so cool to kind of see how things are coming back where like a local radio station is planning to move out to Maker Square at Fort Warden. Well, they had, during World War II, they had, what was, um, they had uh, ABC, had NBC Blue, they had uh, Armed Forces Radio, they had a blue, I think a white, they had a couple of different versions that either played East Coast or West Coast. But for live radio performances to be going on at Fort Warden during World War II, it, it seems so canteen, L.A. kind of New York thing, but to have it happen in Port Townsend seems pretty cool as well. So, yeah, it was, it was, it's always, but to me, Fort Warden's always kind of been a cultural center, whether you fill it up with uh, soldiers or civilians, but that piece of property just seems to draw all sorts of creativeness and, you know, music a certain part of that. I, I, I can't help myself but throw a history repeats itself cliche into the fold right now, despite the fact that obviously the fort's use has changed so much over the past 50 odd years or so. I'm very curious to hear your perspectives, both as a a, a local, but also as an expert, you know, how once we've moved past its legacy as a a functional fort, um, how is some of that like cultural or some of those cultural threads run through, you know, into the 50s and 60s, but also into the contemporary once it was converted into a park? Well, it's... There's the story between, I guess the big story, because they left a big footprint between World War One and World War Two, is, okay, what do we do with this fort? The guns are obsolete. It's way out here in the middle of nowhere. How do we find a new purpose for it? And that's when they thought, well, maybe we could make it a, a some sort of airport facility. And that's when they started talking about observation balloons. So... And to me, I, I thought this was, uh, was kind of interesting. They did an awful lot of studying before they brought the balloons up here, but they started building the balloon hangar before they actually started trying to fly the balloons. And these were gondola-type balloons that were tethered to the ground. So they, if you've been out there, you've seen that big balloon hangar. Well, they were building that, and then they fought, bought the first balloon up here and started flying it around and said, way, way too windy. You can't fly balloons up here. So the balloon company went away, but they'd already let the contract, so they went ahead and finished the balloon hanger. So it never had a balloon in it. It's this great big building. What do we do with it? And then, of course, then during World War II, that's the place where it was jammed full of uh, big band music and civilians as well as soldiers. And in one article on the paper in the leader, this is 1944, it talked about having over 1,500 people in the balloon hangar for a uh, dance band. And then, what, two years ago, we held The Thing, and we had something like, over the weekend, 15,000 people in there listening to music. So, yeah, it circles around. I mean, it's like this fort was meant to be a, uh, I always used to say, a confluence of culture. The uh, the idea of putting soldiers in here was uh, just to get things going, just to prime the pump. But it was always going to be a cultural corner of the community rather than a military corner. So... I, I Whether love, we liked it or not, that's what it ended up. <laughs> yeah, no, and I love that term, confluence of culture. I think that is, <laughs> I, I mean, it's perfect. It's perfect for now. It's perfect for the past. I, I think it's interesting when you think about, you know, different cities around the country, how our military relationship has changed and how a lot of these sites are being used in different ways. But I don't know that they all necessarily have the same kind of, you know, magical, uh, the, the embedded magical energy that Fort Warden seems to have, both from a cultural perspective as being a place that people feel inspired and want to activate with creative and cultural uses, but also just, you know, energetically as a land. I think it's, it, it's a very special place. And, you know, it's been very interesting to talk with people to hear them sort of report back just on that, you know, walking the grounds has this kind of hollowed feel to it. Well, and as, and as a little kid, and, and, and because, you know, I don't know, you couldn't articulate it even if I do did understand what I was feeling at the time. But I, I was out that fort. I can remember being in that fort when I'm what, seven, eight years old. So at that time, it's it's just become, was it in 58, it became a uh, juvenile treatment and diagnostic center. And the only thing I knew about the fort was we would go down to North Beach and then we would go down the beach and then we would scale the bluffs to get up on Artillery Hill. 
which were off limits. And of course, we would run around up there in those old uh, gun emplacements, and they were fallout shelters back then. There was there was still stuff around that we could get into, i.e., break into, and and we were just in hog heaven. I mean, we were doing search and evasion, commando kind of stuff. We were playing army. We were having a great time. And we also had in the back of our mind that if security caught us, we really thought we were going to get in serious trouble. In fact, they might even shoot us. So we we got ourselves in this frame of mind that we were really living on the edge while we were running around up there and trying to avoid security. And that was my first connection with Fort Warden. It was that really tantalizing place that you were not supposed to go to. That, of course, that's what you wanted to spend your your boyhood days doing. I remember that when they made it into a state park and made Artillery Hill accessible to the public, you know, it kind of lost some of its luster. It was no longer quite the thrill that it used to be. But even as a little kid, like the the place had a, I just had this, had a draw. I just had to go there. And when I started and the first time I ever saw a picture of who the fort was named after, this guy named Warden, and, and that he was a sailor, and I'm 10 years old trying to put two and two together and saying, why did they name an army post for a sailor? And I've been asking myself that question ever, ever since. And that's what really started me looking into the fort as, as something that, you know, started for some reason and, and still exists for some reason. And I was trying to answer the question why at that point. So it's been a part of me ever since. And the uniqueness of its name is just kind of carried through the fort. I mean, it's so funny you think what's in the name, but fort, like you said, Fort Warden is so much different in how they um, they sold off other forts on the uh, on the West Coast or anywhere in the country. And so many of the forts got converted into private properties or some combination of public-private use. But how we deliberately tried to keep the that magic that seems to be there already, and it seems to be more about culture and people than munitions, is, you know, I don't know if that that holds true in other military installations around the, around the country, but I certainly feel it in Fort Ward. That was always meant to be something to gather people at, but not necessarily to you know, in a more of a militaristic or defensive posture. And it, it's so refreshing to hear some of those stories, too, like the, the value of you know, you, you were speaking a little bit before about when Artillery Hill was deemed inaccessible and there's, mm-hmm. this, there's this interstitial value between just, you know, chapter one of its use in history, chapter two of its use in history, chapter three of its use in history. And these these energies and these this desire for it to become like or, or to remain this cultural and magnetic focus of, of the region. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and you even said once it was opened up, it didn't necessarily, it, it just changed your relationship with it, you know? So it's like mm-hmm. when it was off limits, there was a relationship and then it was open, there was a relationship and it just keeps reinventing itself and it keeps, you know, continuing to remain this strong cultural center. And I, I guess kind of fast forward into, you know, something that's more contemporary than, than anything we've really been talking about. How, how important do you think it is that people sort of acknowledge all of the different chapters of its, of its history? The Fort Warden, for me growing up, it was so much a neighborhood. I mean, it's its own, you know, I grew up on Taylor Street right behind Aldrich. So, I mean, I can, you know, I think back on the years, I can tell, I can look on both sides of Taylor Street for about four or five blocks and, and name all the families that lived in them. The same thing, is that um, when you read the uh, the living histories of the people that were stationed at Fort Warden, I mean, NCO Row is just a perfect, you look at it, you stand and look up the street, and it's a Norman Rockwellian type of uh, atmosphere. You've got these front porches and these these pretty houses all in a row and these yards and these, and these sidewalks. Everything's just uh, kind of tidy in there. And then you read the stories of the people who live there, where they came from. And again, they felt either the same magic as the locals did, or they or they met a local and married a local, and and they stayed here. And, and it's, it was a boot camp for sure, but it was also it was a you know, like most military bases, people come from all over parts of the country, come here, find a person, say this is the place, and then they end up raising their families. And the number of names, which is so interesting, if you look at the names from the 1900s, 1920s, even the 1930s, where they came to Port Townsend and then eventually stayed or returned after the, the war was over. And these are family names that are still here today. So in the 120-some years of the fort, how many people are in this community in Jefferson County because the fort was built? I love dealing with history in circles. 
and how everything circles around. And uh, my grandfather, John Hopkins Caldwell, met an Italian immigrant, Caroline Sophie, uh, when he came to Fort Warden, and she was working in the PX, and he ended up getting married. And then when he passed away, she came back with her three children. One of them was my dad, and, you know, he raised nine kids here, and here we are, and we just keep circling around. And that's one of thousands of stories, and I'd say at least 30% of them are people that now live, work, and, and spend their lives here in Port Townsend. And they're here because their grandfather, a great-grandfather, or showed up as a soldier at Fort Warden. So it's, it's got that kind of family feel to it that the, the neighborhoods, NCO rows and officers rows of, of Fort Warden are as critical as the Taylor streets and the F streets and the, the, the streets in town that have the neighborhoods that we normally think of. And I've always loved that. I love the stories of the families who came to Port Townsend because of the fort and then stayed. It's, you know, their children that are, are putting these things back into the fort. One of the other great boot camp stories I love about it, and you've talked to the Sandvigs one, they were out here with a juvenile treatment center. It was that going on the same time I was in school. And I remember to us, Fort Warden then was almost like another school district. I mean, they had basketball teams and they had different other activities. So we, we met the kids in places other than at the fort where they were confined because they were we knew they were Jews. So we knew it came from backgrounds that we weren't familiar with anyway. And we, so we were, we were kind of in awe. But when they closed that down, the teachers who were there most of them ended up working in our school district. So the fort was kind of a boot camp for teachers that ended up in the Port Townsend School District when I was in high school. So it's, it's always had an education element to it. Certainly during World War II, it certainly had a, a connection because of its music. David King, who was one of our former mayors, used to always say that Port Townsend is a college town without a college. And Fort Warden is physically could be or is i think what we would consider our college campus here in east jefferson county i, I i'm sitting over here i know you can't see me i'm i'm aggressively nodding yes during, throughout everything, <laughs> everything you're saying and I, I again i i love i love the things you know that you're stressing you know history and how history runs us in circles and how appealing that is and and the value of of different storytelling, you know, not just your own personal stories, but like the richness of the stories that come from, you know, the, the people who resided at the Ford or resided at the town or who came back to the town or were drawn there for reasons that had to do um, with their experiences in the past uh, at the Ford or otherwise. And I guess what okay. I wanted to, to maybe ask you to, to kind of close us out, looking at the history and, and the, the sort of advent and the, the early development of the fort and just basically talking through this understanding of it as being a, such a strong energetic center and a strong cultural hub for the community for so many years. What, what do you see for its future? Well, it's uh, because this town is, is such a cultural hub. It, it, it's, uh, it's, it's the attraction that's been here for, I think, since it was settled in the 1850s, I think this, well, this is just such a, when you talk about sense of place, I can't imagine, the two things I can't imagine for uh, Port Townsend without, and that's the paper mill and Fort Warden. And these two economic engines that literally book in the community are, in my mind, just too big to fail. The, uh, the mill uh, is, is our closest thing to heavy industry. It, uh, and the, the fort, I think, is our closest thing to the educational industry, uh, whatever that education is. Pick a subject, pick a topic, pick a time. It, it's just such a, the, the corner of Wanda Fuca Strait and Puget Sound was meant to be something to draw people into community for cultural awareness, whatever, whatever you want to call it. And I think that its physical location demands that that, that exists, that continue. So I, don't, I see more of the same. I think what the PDA is doing is uh, uh, should continue and, and will continue. I think it is what's going to continue to uh, create opportunity for different types of cultural awareness and on cultural enhancement, whether it's reading, writing, singing, dance, theatrics, any, any of those, those kinds of disciplines. It would be nice if, uh, well, I always said when we first started this PDA is that my goal was to make it a division one school so we could uh, have somebody in the final four basketball. You know, we need a small college here to kind of 
keep the competitive juices flowing on this little peninsula. But be that as it may, it is still, I think, a cultural hub for, for the entire Pacific Northwest. And thanks to the Army, we have the buildings uh, in place that we can continue with them. They're well built. There's no question uh, as we work through officers row and, and the state continues to put capital infrastructure into to keeping this 120-year-old fort going, it it just draws people by itself. It is a build it and they will come kind of an enterprise. I think that maybe will be the note that we end on it because I'm a little bit of a baseball guy myself and Field of Dreams is one of my favorite movies. Yeah, uh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But it's also, again, if, if you build it, they will come has sort of an immediacy to it. And this is, we're talking about a string of buildings that are 120 years old in certain instances. So this is definitely if you built it or if you built it in the past, they will continue to come. Well, yeah, you might want to qualify and say it, restore it and they'll come is kind of what we're after because the buildings are there and uh, the enrichment, the restoration for enrichment just makes the perfect sense for Fort Warden. And, and I think that that is, you know, hopefully the path that we continue to, to, to remain on, uh, either whether it be creative and ways to yeah, build new structures or creative ways to, you know, activate mm-hmm. with, with, you know, inspired programming, um, all the things that have made it great and, you know, I, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us because I think the, the richest treasure that the fort has and, you know, will continue to be able to give to the, the surrounding community is the, the richness and the gift of stories, you know, stories that are, are older, that are newer, that, that haven't been written yet, that, you know, haven't been collected yet. And maybe, you know, maybe Fort Warden is an academic industry or an educational industry, and maybe its major output is, is storytelling. Um, I, I, I love doing it. I tell you, it's, it's a real thrill to, to read these lives. And, and it's, it's so much easier, particularly if you know the fort, because when you read these histories on someone who's talking about, here's what I did 100 years ago, you can literally walk the grounds and, and put yourself where that person was. That's what's so exciting about it. And going back in time, it's so easy to do at Fort Warden particularly if you make those, like you say, the more you know about the place where you're standing, obviously it feels that much closer to reality when you, when you look back on the history of this fort. And, and that's what's so wonderful about the buildings haven't moved and the stories that the people told, you know, can literally be read or spoken about in the place where they happened, which is pretty impressive. I like that part. No, it, it, it's amazing. And, you know, Tim, thank you. I, I think please continue yeah. to help us at all costs, share these stories, tell these stories, inspire these stories, collect these stories. And I, I, I look forward to, you know, learning more about the four and learning more from you. And I just appreciate your time. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Well, this has been really interesting to listen to this array of perspectives. Aaron, thank you for bringing these voices to this project. Uh, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share as we sort of conclude the audio portion of this project? I always have thoughts to share. I think a, a couple of specific thoughts are just how uh, rewarding it's been to talk to to people here. I think on the one hand, the installation had a lot to do with reading through conversations that were transcribed and pulling you know nuggets of text out of those transcriptions to share with the public and to share them in real space and give the walls a voice while you're moving through space. But it's a whole different thing to have real fluid conversations with people, um, hear their voices, hear their stories that way. Um, and it's such a wonderful treat to be able to share pieces of those conversations with people. And I think, you know, the the name of the game here is just trying to overlap as many different ways to interact with people as possible. And it's just, you know, wonderful to be able to reach people on their own terms moving through the fort, but also, you know, adding this other element of real conversations as a piece of this project is is just something that I think adds a level of richness that is just personally very satisfying to be able to follow through with. And I, I hope into the future, I hope that this just serves as a little piece of inspiration for people to just have more conversations with other people as we move forward. And I look forward to staying in contact with these four and all the dozens of other people I've been able to, to meet and get to know while working on this project and look forward to you know the next hundred years of history at the fort. Thank you. And thank you so much for your time and, and your work on this. And we, at the time of this recording, will continue to enjoy 
looking at your work as I walk through the campus and as I know many others are. And if people are listening to this and it is before November 9th, go go up on the hill, come visit and, and see the work. Thank you so much, Michelle. This project has really been a treat and a, a rewarding treasure that I'll never forget. Okay. Well, likewise. Thank you for listening to this Centrum podcast. The creator and host of On Air is Michelle Hagwood, Program Manager for Artist Residencies. Our cover artwork is by Leon Finley, and our music is by Tabor Dark. Centrum's Executive Director is Robert Berman. Centrum podcasts are produced by Taven Dotson, Owen Rowe, and Holly Miller. Our Executive Producer is Joe Gillard. With gratitude and respect, we acknowledge that we broadcast from the traditional lands of the Coast Salish peoples from the place known by the Sklalem people as Katai, and today called Port Townsend, Washington. Centrum programs are based at Fort Warden State Park in Port Townsend. Centrum was founded in 1973 to foster creative arts experiences that change lives, and is dedicated to building a world of greater inclusion through the arts. Other Centrum podcasts include music from the Centrum archives, interviews with teaching artists, and readings from the Port Townsend Writers' Conference. To subscribe to any of our podcasts or to support or participate in Centrum programs, visit our website at centrum.org. Thank you for listening. This podcast is copyright 2020, Centrum Foundation.